This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. several panes of glass to get here tonight. My shoes fit perfectly and I'm a fantastic kisser. Let's talk McGann, let's talk telemovie. Yes, and welcome to episode 250 of the Doctor Who podcast, a landmark podcast, you could say. Indeed, I mean, we've come so far, 250 episodes, and it's, um, thank you for inviting me along today, James. Well, it, it wouldn't quite be the same without new presence, so we just persuaded Trevor that he needed to come back and talk about the telly movie, because one of the things Trevor cannot resist, listeners, is to talk <laughs> about the telly movie. <laughs> he will say that he's the one person who adores this piece of Doctor Who, which simply isn't true. But uh, anyway, yes, Trevor is here. Also, Michelle, and it's about four o'clock in the morning you're in, so we're going to need to keep on talking to you directly to make certain you haven't nodded off. Hello, Michelle. Hello, I'm here. I can remember why we don't (laughs) let Trev record with us very much anymore. (laughs) Why is that? Because he likes the telly movie? No, because it bumps me to 4 (laughs) a.m. Well, what we want to try and do this episode is cover pretty much all of McGann's tenure. So because, I suppose, on television it consists of 90 minutes, then it shouldn't take that long. But uh, we're going to go slightly into the expanded universes here as well. And we're going to be visiting Night of the Doctor. We're going to have a view from Stephen on that. And Leeson has been watching a telly movie as well, but sadly can't be with us in, well, I was going to say reality, but you can't really call anything that we do in the camp of our reality, can you? <laughs> and Leeson probably would agree with you anyway, because he's rarely in reality himself as it is. So yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's very true. Very true. Yes. And uh, so it's a bit of a shame that he isn't uh, isn't with us, as you say, because I know that he's recently met and spoke to Paul McGann. It's quite strange. We I don't know how long we've been going now as a podcast, four or five years, something like that. And as you would expect, listeners, we try, we make efforts to meet the high profile actors in Doctor Who. And with Paul McGann, it's it's always, always drawn a blank. And within, I think, the same month, totally coincidentally, Ian gets to spend 15 minutes with him. And Leeson spends about 15 minutes with him at two totally separate conventions. So very, very strange. He's been a fairly regular uh, convention goer. He's been to Gallifrey at least two or three times, I think, over the past five, six years. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yes, we enjoyed him at Gallifrey this year and just a couple of years ago. So did you manage to attend a convention that he was at, Michelle, and not speak to him at all? Yes. <laughs> you sound slightly disappointed there, Michelle. Or defensive. <laughs> Wait, was that a loaded question, James? As if I would send any loaded questions your way. How much did you get to see of McGann on stage at uh, at Galley? Actually, I saw a fair amount. Um, There was the one particular panel that he did with with Jason Hagellery, talking a lot about the big finish work, but also quite a bit about Night of the Doctor. And that was the one where he watched Night uh, for for the first time, and we got to Mm. watch him watch time of the doctor for the first time so that that was pretty special do you believe that he hadn't watched it until that point yes absolutely uh it was very clear and it was very clear that jason had deliberately set him up knowing that he's not the kind of actor who watches himself uh mm, and had had it all enough. planned that way so yeah no, I, when i heard that i just thought no nah, i don't believe it what with all the hype of the 50th anniversary and the raucous reception he got from fans for about a week after that went online i just thought 
well, surely he would want to have seen what it is everybody's getting so excited about. No, evidently he's one of these folks that doesn't doesn't like to watch himself, and he was cringing and sinking into the couch, and it was very very clear that he had not seen it yet. But let me get this right. There's actually a thing scheduled into a convention where you can go sit in a big room and watch somebody watch TV. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's actually part of a convention, and, and people find this entertaining. It was riveting. It was just riveting. <laughs> And it wasn't really scheduled that way. Like I said, I think it's something that Jason Hagellery sprung on him. Oh, okay. So the, okay. I don't know where to go with that, really. I mean, I could no. save myself thousands of dollars and just watch my kids watch TV and ask them the occasional question. <laughs> <laughs> he also had with him the actress who played Cass in Night of the Doctor uh, at that point on stage. And so that was interesting, too. She had watched it and, and had had that experience already. Ah, oh, so you got to watch another person who'd already seen it watch television. Okay, all right. Okay. Trav, you 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 really need to make the journey back to LA one of these days to do this. It's it's worth every penny. I'm not entirely certain he will be allowed back in. To be honest with you. <laughs> anyway, well, let's stop talking about Paul McGann and listen to him. Uh, Ian got a chance to sit down with him for a short while at Big Finish Day Four, and this is what he had to say. I'm here at Big Finish Day 4 with the man of the moment, the 8th Doctor, <laughs> Paul McGann. Paul, welcome for to it, the show. For it is he, the man of the moment. Well, the man of a brief moment in, uh, in November, anyway. <laughs> November the 14th, which was incidentally was my birthday, huh? when that night of the Doctor went out. That must have been a wonderful present. It was actually a, a, a gift. It was about 11 in the morning and... Uh, Stephen Moffat sent me a message saying that uh, due to circumstances slightly beyond his control, he was going to have to put it out early. Anyway, but the, the, the long and the short of it is that they were concerned it was about to be leaked, so they put it out. Well, it was. It was a good birthday present. Were you surprised at the, the level of reaction? I was surprised, yeah. Because, you know, with, uh, reaction isn't really something that you've, you know, we tend to dwell on. Uh, you just try and do the thing, try and get it right. Um... Because the expectation was, and the plan was, that it would go out uh, on the 22nd, 23rd, with the rest of the, you know, the, the anniversary output. Which, of course, it did, you know, formally. But um, because it went out earlier, uh, nearly 10 days earlier, it, so in effect it had that clear run of uh, attention and publicity and effect. And, uh, well, you know, the effect was... What an effect, you know. Millions of YouTube hits. and That was, you see, that, that was something I, I hadn't expected. I hadn't just really considered. Um, but the attention and the, the reaction was fantastic. Yeah. And very gratifying. You know, for years, I remember, you know, I just thought that, you know, the Eighth Doctor, though it's kind of, it's part of things now and it's popular, and um, it's popular these days. It wasn't, I didn't always feel that it was so, you know, I thought it was kind of shoehorned in a little bit, perhaps tolerated rather than loved, um, at least early on. Um, but anyway, now it's, I think the reaction has proved, you know, that he's definitely part of things. So sort of legitimised your doctor? Kind of thing. What's that word they use? Canon. Canonised. <laughs> it's canonised him. But, uh, but you know what I mean, it's, uh, <clears throat> that's been very uh, satisfying, I think. What was the story behind it? How did, when did you first approached and how did the process go? Uh, in April, 
last year we were away, I say we, uh, the other doctors, we were doing a four doctor thing in Australia uh, and I got a message through then from Cardiff. And that incidentally was the first, any, the first contact ever I'd, that I'd had from Cardiff. Uh, never had a Christmas card or a phone call or anything from them, you know, in the years since the, since it's been back on or, so, uh, just to put it in context, you know, that was the very first contact ever. Uh, and it was from Stephen Moffat. And basically sounding me out, you know, quickly sounding me out. If in principle I did this, would you do this? Would you turn up and da 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 da? Um, I was with, like I said, I was with the other doctors. I was also with Nick Briggs. And I mentioned it quietly to Nick. And he said, whatever it is, you've got to do it. Because um, he knows Stephen, he'd met him. And, uh, and then the rest happened very quickly. I agreed to it. But of course the condition was that I had to keep shtun about it from the others, from everybody. Um, and Stephen's condition was that if I, you know, I would agree to it first. If I agreed to it, he'd write it. So effectively, he said, I haven't written it. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll do something if you say you'll come and do it. And that was how it was done. And as far as I could tell, I mean, obviously it was in Stephen's head, he knew what he was going to do. But as far as, because they had their hands full with the big, <coughs> the big 3D film, the, you know, the 50th special up at Cardiff. And our shoot was tagged onto the end of that. Or at least, you know, they'd had their rap party on the Saturday, I think we turned up on the Monday, on the same, just near the same set, and started shooting. We shot it in a day, day and a bit, yeah. You were saying to Nick on stage earlier on, asking him how he felt to have the, the call-out to all the big finish stories. Did you, you must have had some personal satisfaction in that. I actually didn't think of that. I mean, often, but that's often the way that it is with me. I, I mean, I'm famous here with the fans particularly. You know, I'm se- I've seriously been playing catch-up with the stories, the mythology, the 50 years of... or when I started, you know, the 30-odd years of, 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 uh, of Doctor Who. Um, you know, it's sometimes the context of things, at least in terms of uh, storylines and old storylines, go slightly over my head. And in this... And, of course, when you're working as a performer, it's not always, that's not always a consideration. It rarely is. Um, and, it, and it happened so quickly. Nor, incidentally, did... Um, Stephen Moffat discuss anything with me. There wasn't time. They, you know, uh, meaning that he didn't say, "Well, look, do you understand what this is? This is, and this harks back to that, and this is why I've." Re-. We never had that conversation. It's uh, you know, I just turned up and did it. But um, very happy though to see, as you mentioned, the uh, those big Finnish characters mentioned. But but like I say, for me. They were just my, they were my companions. So I thought, well, of course, it makes perfect sense. It all felt natural. But it's only a couple of days later that I thought, oh, look, well, you know, that, uh, that legitimises a few things. That's the first time that these particular characters have been acknowledged. But then again, it describes, I think, as, as far as I know it anyway, pretty accurately now, the relationship between, that's grown between Big Finish and Cardiff. It's pretty symbiotic. They've always had a, they've had to have a working relationship, um, but nice anyway. I think that's something that was gratifying. It pleased the fans. Was there any additional challenges to get back into the character for a visual performance? Well, I can say that I don't know about challenges, but I can say that 
had I not had the advantage of the audio plays and having played the Doctor for ten more years on audio, I probably would have floundered a bit, at least for the first few hours, um, given that it was only whatever, 18 years ago, for just for a few weeks that I played the character. I probably would have, oh God, what, what, what is this? Remind me, what am I doing? Who is it? But as it was, I could hit the ground running. I was well into it. And, it, and of course it works both ways. I mean, in a sense, there's no, there's no difference, you know, they are in character-wise, you know, either visually or uh, just on audio. Not for me, anyway. And better than that, Stephen Moffat, surely quite instinctively, completely understood the lines to give me the scenario, the, 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 the way to write for me, I think. It was just so easy. What I mean is that he... My idea of the Eighth Doctor, given that he and I had never discussed the Eighth Doctor ever, was exactly how he wrote it. And then, though it's only six and a half minutes long, I think you'll agree that he's managed to, to actually condense, to squeeze so much detail... Um, and sort of disparate things into just a short time. Lovely bit of writing. But even better than that, he's, he's completely nailed this, you know, this Eighth Doctor. That this is ha but in a way that, that even uh, 18 years ago, when I was beginning to, when we started and when we were doing the pilot, how I envisaged this character, that's the one Stephen wrote. And I guess his advantage was that he's been working on it for years. So it worked. It worked for both of us, I think. It worked both ways. Um, but you know, uh, I suppose um, you know this peaceable, um, rather honourable but battered character. This the one that I'd always imagined this this doctor was, you know, tough and realistic, you know, unsentimental, but with that kind of bruised nobility. That, that just instinctively, that's a, this is what I've, this is the character that I want to play. That's what's interesting. And that's what he brought, even in just those few few scenes in six and a few minutes. You got it. That's, even if you'd never seen him or heard the audios, you could see what Stephen had written. You, there it is. And it was so easy to play in that regard. So, um, you know, my thanks to him for that. Because heaven knows I've worked on so many inferior and cha seriously challenging bits of writing because they're not very good. Often, or they're just not, you know, we as actors just get used to that, I think. But when you work on something that just fits and works, I think it's worth acknowledging. You know, so hats off to Stephen Martin. Since its huge success, there has been much speculation about there being further adventures for the Eighth Doctor on TV. <laughs> you can't stop it, can you? You can't stop it. If you were asked, would you do it? That's the question I'm always asked. If you're asked, will you do it? If I was asked to do something of that ilk again, why would I want to turn it down? It's a, it's a gift, something of that quality, something of you know. That, um, it would of course it's conditional. It would have to be something with quality. What's the point in doing anything otherwise? It would have to be something I like. It would have to be something that that worked. I think that uh, I think realistically, obviously. Look, let, let's set it in context. I have worked. I was saying this this morning with with Nick on stage. In my in my career, I've shot maybe twenty days as Doctor Who. That's all, and probably that's all I'll ever shoot. You know, given that the mini episode was a day, you know, the uh, the pilot before it was probably 
aggregately paid maybe 20 odd days. That's it. Um, I don't expect there'll be any more. I don't know, though. So, you know, really, my doctor's an audio doctor, by and large. But, and of course, now we have a new doctor, we have a new actor, Peter Capaldi, playing the doctor. So this is his time. So I think it's not probably, not that it's not appropriate, but I don't think we much right to expect anything else than a clear run for Capaldi's doctor in future. Who knows? The beauty of the thing is, of course, that as, we, as has been proven already, you know, we can go back, things can be, you know, we can go back in time, we can, we can do what we like, essentially. The way that the Eighth Doctor ended, the way that the mini-episode ended, of course, seemed, at least narratively, to be, to suggest that that's it. You know, and I think we have to accept that. That's the way Moffat wrote it, that's the way I played it. The end is the end. It's not open, we need to leave it open-ended. It's not, you know, that's in story-wise, that's not open-ended. So I think there's your answer, I think. I don't expect that the phone will ring again, but I don't know either. That's my answer. Well, obviously you're still working with Big Finish. And, and long may it continue. Dark Eyes 2, what are you able to tell us about that? Well, I can't spoil it for you, otherwise I'll have to kill you. Um, but it's... Well, of course, it's it's absolutely in the vein of Dark Eyes 1. I really think that Ruth Bradley is a star turn. She's brilliant um, and kind of carries... She steals it, actually. That's what I can tell you. She steals Dark Eyes 2 from under our noses. The thief. Um, no, I'm really looking forward to it. I think we're getting better and better at doing it. Um, the longer we go on, you know. I must. What was really gratifying? The, the shortly after the fiftieth, we were in Chicago. We went to Chicago Tardis, and that because it was so close to the to the anniversary, because of a lot of excitement. Um, anyway, you know, kids wanted to talk about what they'd just seen and the, the, the anniversary that had just passed. But so many are now saying. I may, I've just got my mate my, into the audios for the first time. So many are co- have now come to the audios um, for the first time. Yeah, yeah, never thought of it before, but you know what? Bought one, so glad I did. Now I'm going to go back through the catalogue and buy the others. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, quite aside from anything else, it's a great thing to play in the car. Now, for the, particularly for the Americans, the Americans drive longer distances than we do. So it was a, for them, you know, they, they, they buy loads because... You know, a four-hour car journey, you can kill it with one audio. It's great. Um, so we're very hopeful now that uh, more and more people are coming to it. You know, you know, long may it continue. And it's given me, again, it's restored my own enthusiasm for radio, radio drama. You know, when it's good, it's unbeatable. Radio drama, I think, audio drama. Well, Paul, thank you very much for your time and congratulations on your return to the fold. Thank you very much. Well, all I can say after listening to that is that interview fitted perfectly. It was absolutely wonderful. Fantastic to hear him again talk Doctor Who. He's a kind of guy, I mean, he's one of those Doctor Who actors that really is animated about the stuff he does. I mean, some of them you sort of get the impression that, you know, they're doing it for a job, for a paycheck, but McGann isn't one of them. He he loves the show and he's, a, a, I suppose, a fantastic ambassador for it, really. Mm. 
One of, one of my favorite parts about the interview was how he was so impressed that Stephen Moffat got his character the way he sees his character. And it was fun to see him that engaged after all these years that he that he still cares so much about his character and specifically how it's uh, portrayed on television or online. By the way, that was shown on television here in the United States. Oh. Um, I, I thought that not, not I don't know that it was particularly when it was first released, but uh, in the week since the anniversary, BBC America has done the odd marathon here and there going through all that material again. And they insert Time of the Doctor chronologically right where it should be. And it just, it thrills me every time I see Paul McGann on my TV screen. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I think it's quite clear that Paul McGann has, has always quite enjoyed playing the Doctor. But again, and, and this came to light from what Leeson said a little while ago as well. He's never really considered himself a canonical doctor not in the same way all of the other doctors are despite the fact fandom has regarded him that way for a very very long period of time and i think he took him by surprise the fact that Stephen moffat not only knew that he'd been doing big finish but he knew all about the storylines of the companions and uh, mm. I, I think he was a little bit blown away by that i mean that came out quite clear during his BFI screening as well you know I mean he was uh he obviously he couldn't talk about Night of the Doctor then because nobody knew about it but he did talk about how you know the production crew have acknowledged the eighth doctor as a valid doctor as part of previous stories you know where you see flashback sequences and so on and and I think he was extremely pleased even even by that little nod but one of the main reasons we're, we're all here one of the reasons why Trevor is here is to discuss where it all started for Paul McGann as the Doctor and that's back in 1996. One of the things I wanted to ask the pair of you to start with is cast your minds back 20 odd years ago either where were you or how did you hear that the show was going to be coming back and that Paul McGann was going to be cast as the Doctor? Certainly for me, back in, I suppose, the early to mid-90s when, you know, fandom was kind of hibernating a little bit, you know, we're, we're still in the era of, of almost the pre-internet type of era. I mean, the internet wasn't a really big thing, so you still relied a lot on, I suppose, newsletters from your local club. And you're probably the first place I heard it was from our local Doctor Club of Australia, for, you know, sort of one of their newsletters. And then it sort of spread like wildfire, all around Australia, and I, I certainly remember we had a massive day which included a screening and raffles and stuff like that in Brisbane for our, our local club back in 96. Um, it, it was a really, really big thing. I mean, I mean, you sort of have to consider where Doctor Who and Doctor Who fans were at that point. You know, they hadn't seen anything since the previous decade, or almost 10 years, and I, I think even Tom said last week, um, during the showrunner episode, fandom kind of just survived on, you know, the books and the audios and stuff like that that were being produced officially and unofficially. And, uh, you know, to finally get even a slight whiff of something official, Doctor Who-wise, after years of false starts and promises and things just never happening, you know, finally came the day Paul McGann is the Doctor. It, it was incredible. And when it was screened in Australia, did you watch that at home or were you with this uh, bunch of friends you were talking about, this fan fan club? Well, I mean, certainly the fan club was the first place we saw it because we, we got copies from overseas because it was released on VHS, I think, oh, even true. before it got an Australian screening. So That was, that was um, the same here yeah, these... in the UK as well, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, long, long before the days of simultaneous worldwide screenings, you know, we were lucky to get new Doctor Who within six months of the UFK screening, really. So, 
Um, you know, we, we were very happy that the VHS was released quickly. We could get copies over, we could raffle a few off, and we could show it on the big screen at uh, uh, the uh, local university. It was great. You know, at that time, I would have been working in a, in a very remote area, and I can't even remember whether I had direct access to TV. I don't think I had the ability to tape it, but I do think I saw it Maybe not on broadcast, but shortly after, I remember relying on my dad to make a VHS tape for me and send it to me. <laughs> and I, I, and I have had that VHS tape ever since. I mean, until the the DVD finally came out here in the United States, just not that long ago. What within the last year or two, I would still pull out that old VHS tape <laughs> on occasion and 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 stick it in. Um, the 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 Doctor Who movie forever is kind of linked in my mind with my dad's handwriting on the VHS tape. Um, I, so, I, yeah. I, I love the fact that VHS cassettes feature so prominently in your memories of what at the time was considered to be really modern Doctor Who. You know, it was 90s Doctor Who because, of course, VHSs in the UK were, were, were pretty much the currency of Doctor Who fandom because there was, you know, someone had got hold of a, an old story, you know, an old classic story, as we call them now, uh, that made 25 copies of it. And everybody ended up making copies of that too. And, uh, you know, that was passed around fan groups and uh, fan gatherings and so on. And that was that was an absolutely fantastic um, memory that uh, that was recalled for me, certainly, by, by hearing people still treasuring VHS cassettes. But my memories of actually hearing the news are, are, are quite clear. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because it broke in the papers about a week before I was due to attend my very first Doctor Who convention ever. So I, I think this was mm. either in 1994 or 1995. And it was in either at Coventry or Birmingham or some, somewhere in the Midlands in the UK. I remember it was the one and only time I ever met John Pertwee because he was the main star there. He was a big doctor, despite the fact Colin Baker was there as well. He spent, I think it was just one day there, whereas John Pertwee was there for all, all weekend. And so they were talking about the fact that it's coming back. You know, they all heard of McGann. I hadn't heard of Paul McGann at the time. But Anthony Ainley was there. Michael Sheard was there. Sophie Aldred and Liz Sladen. And I've, I've never known any kind of collection or gathering of fans to be so buzzing in the past and of course mm. this is the reason why it wasn't actually a typical convention it was because everybody was so hyped up with the news that it was coming back and it was a uh, well it was absolutely an amazing event I remember that very very much and I remember John Pertwee talking about how <laughs> how much he was looking forward to seeing it yeah well that that's right I mean it's it's interesting the way that we have such passion for this telly movie, and I, I think it's something that those fans who who lived through the wilderness years have in common that they spent so long starved of televised Doctor Who that when this came along, I think we were pretty much happy for McGann to read the telephone book as long as he was playing the Doctor. And and there's a little bit of that when you know we come to hear like twenty twenty five years later <laughs> and you see it through modern eyes, and and also an extension of that you have modern fans seeing it through modern eyes, and it's a little bit tarnished these days, I think, because while I think the modern series owes an incredible debt style-wise and uh, tone-wise to the telly movie, I don't think modern fans recognise that, and it, and it kind of gets a bit of a bad rap as a, as a result. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really strange, because I think people who are new to Doctor Who or who have found Doctor Who, certainly since 2005, when they go back and watch the telly movie... It isn't anything special. I mean, it it's no. slightly unique in the back catalogue, but it, it it's nothing that 
you know, kind of justifies or explains why there are so many long-term fans or old fans like us who get so excited about it. Because I think the the memories of the announcement of the show coming back and the amount of coverage it got on BBC One and the amount it was trialled, those memories are almost as strong and prevalent for me as actually watching the show itself. Well, and the optimism that, that maybe this would lead to Doctor Who regularly on the screens again. There's something about, you know, if you've lived through the wilderness years, and then when the Doctor comes back, and of course it was particularly true when the new season came back and stayed back, that, you know, all, something is right in the universe again. <laughs> when, the, when the Doctor is having his adventures on screen, something is right. And, and when he's not there, something's missing. No. And, and yeah, it really, it really was... Uh, quite the the experience to see even even for one night to see the doctor on screen and to see a new doctor and celebrate a new doctor and get excited about a new mm. doctor and, and i think it's wonderful the, the the thing that most fans say about that tv movie is i mean irrespective of what they think of the storyline or eric roberts performance or whatever is paul mcgann because he mm. hit the ground running and he got it spot on from the very first appearance on screen as far as i was concerned from the traumatized lost disorientated time lord that we saw in the hospital all the way through to the final scene where he's playing a role with such confidence you know he is unquestionably and undeniably the doctor for me and i think had that not been the case then it wouldn't have been particularly difficult for subsequent producers and uh, and big finish as well to kind of ignore that 90 minutes of Doctor Who. And mm. there was never a desire, never an intention showed by anyone to, to say, now nah, Paul McGann was just an aberration. You know, he's a perfectly valid Doctor. And that's all down to his qualities as an actor, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think one of the main criticisms I've heard of it is, is because it was so different that it's it's often summed up as Doctor Who has been Americanized. You know, we had car chases, we had lots yeah. of quippy dialogue, which which just wasn't there in the eighties and before. I mean, sure there was humor in the show, but it certainly wasn't in the way that we saw in that telly movie. And and, and some people just watched it and went, Hey, I, I just don't like this. But for for me it, it it was an exciting new direction for the for the show to go. In in that at that point, America was really finding its feet in terms of producing incredible sci-fi and you know sort of fantasy-related television. And to me, the telly movie was just an extension of that. It was exactly the same as all the shows that were on at that time in terms of style and feel. Mm, mm. That um, to to me, it, it was just I suppose I don't know the not ultimate, but the most obvious direction Doctor Who had to go if it was going to compete on the modern stage. And I think that's what the new series has also recognised, that they've gone their own way in terms of being Americanized to a certain extent. And it's worked much better for them, of course, because they've done things differently, but they've still gone down the American route in, in both cases. It's interesting. I hear that this Americanization term thrown about, particularly with the new series. Now, it, it's obvious, I think, as you say, with the TV movie, because it was a, a, a co-production, and, and you do see it very strongly there. And it, it's funny, I think I remember seeing it, as probably any fan did, and you're watching the movie with, with, with your eyes, but in your mind, there's this running commentary, oh, ooh, like that, ooh, ooh, don't like that, ooh, that's not Doctor <laughs> Who, ooh, like that, oh, well, that's different, do I like that or not? But, um, boy, with the new series... I'm not – there are probably things that are influenced by American TV and, and American drama, but I also think there's some things, some ways in which just human beings have learned to experience television and drama differently. I'm not sure everything 
that's different from the way it used to be can be laid at the feet of, of Americans. Um, you know, and some of the stuff works really well. Some of the stuff didn't work mm. so well in the Doctor Who movie. But um, yeah, I mean, it, the fact that it was set in America, I think, was was a big difference for uh, for Doctor Who fans. I mean, that had never really happened before. I mean, Doctor Who had only gone as far as what uh, Seville, I think, before was the furthest. You know, <laughs> until that mm. record, until that point, it was um, it was Paris. Although, although there had been plans at one point, instead of Seville, to film in New Orleans. And that's so right. it had been pondered in the past. And, and that's, again, for a fellow that's got a TARDIS can go pretty much anywhere. It, it's a little odd that he didn't travel further afield. Well, I mean, I know in real life the production values and the, the costs and all exactly. that. Exactly. And, and then um, you look at Mask it, of Mandragora as well. I mean, that was set in uh, that was set in Italy, which was still Europe, even mm-hmm. though it was filmed in this country and so on. And and also, I don't think there was a real desire by the production crew at that point to take Doctor Who, you know, his story for, for story reasons to different countries it was just because john nathan turner fancied a little bit of a jaunt elsewhere i think and if it had produced <laughs> a really good story then fantastic whereas i think now well, wait a minute he did he did go to australia enemy of the world yes because it was filmed in australia and that was <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah. i'm not picky yeah well, well it wasn't filmed in san francisco no it's filmed in vancouver movie, so but the, the point is the fact that it, it was set in a in a very different kind of environment because it was a convincing america australia an enemy of the world you know it could quite easily have been chroma <laughs> you know it's it, <laughs> <laughs> it probably was. I'd say it probably was, Craig, because all I see when I see the beach in Enemy of the World is a dreary British beach. It's not a sun-drenched <laughs> Aussie beach by well, any way, shape or form. There you go, you see. But I think this, this time, the telemovie, <laughs> it changed all of the things that were taken for granted, irrespective of where the story was actually set, including several alien planets, it has to be said, and, and placed it in a convincing American society. All right? Now, it was... That, for me, was a big shift. So the way that they were able to say to people, hey, this is still Doctor Who, is to retain the Britishness of it. So despite the fact that you've got car chases, you've got American ambulances, you've got American accents everywhere, you've still got a a crazy English gentleman in a frock coat Mm -hmm. offering jelly babies. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, Mm -hmm. and that, I think, was solely because Geoffrey Sachs, Matthew Jacobs, were British you know, or, or probably still are British, mm. frankly, mm. And, and and they wanted the heart of that. I mean, y- y- you hear how bad it could have been when you hear Jeffrey Stacks talking about Daleks because the Americans who were doing the SFX in a telly movie didn't know what a Dalek was. They just said, "Right, we've got to do Daleks." And the very first Dalek voice you heard was that of Jeffrey Sachs trying to do a Dalek mm. voice. And it was it was hilarious because the BFI screening of the telly movie brought Jeffrey Sachs together with Nicholas Briggs. And Jeffrey Sachs said, well, up mm. until I met Nicholas Briggs 10 minutes ago, I thought I did a darn good job. <laughs> so, it's, it, But that shows how bad it could have been if they'd have got the other key strokes of Doctor Who wrong. I just think there's so much in the telly movie that shows that it's yep. Doctor Who. There's yep. two, I mean, it's filled with such incredible little moments. I mean, that bit with the shoes in the park where he just jogs off after yeah, saying yeah, they fit yeah. perfectly. Um, uh, you, you, the uh, stuff in the TARDIS. I mean, that TARDIS console. I mean, oh, my goodness. Isn't that the most beautiful console you've ever seen in your entire life? I mean, this is Doctor Who with a little bit of money behind it. I mean, all those panels on there were hand-painted. You know, they just weren't 
printed out of a printer. I mean, the, the, the love and care that went into this production and the amount of effort they did to, to bring in stuff from old Doctor Who, you know, like Jelly Babies and, you know, the TARDIS interior and, you know, have the master back and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there's there's a lot of love in this show. There, there really I, is. I agree completely. And my, my feeling after watching it for the first time in quite a while at the BFI last year was that this is a show that is littered with brilliant little scenes like the shoes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the jelly babies, like I will shoot mm. myself and the American mm-hmm. motorcycle writer yeah. had absolutely no idea what this guy is on about, which is quite honestly what Brits like to think about Americans anyway. You know, and, and it, it's just kind of it just works. The problems arise where you try and string them all together and draw a coherent story all the way through. So for me, mm-hmm. the only thing wrong with a telly movie is the story. Everything else for me works. I think it is a little bit complicated for a first-time story. I mean, we've said the same thing about Big Finish. You know, they need to sell simple stories that someone who just watches it or turns on their TV in 1996 will absolutely love and get hooked and want a whole series based on this weird, you know, British-like guy in this blue box. But you've got the half-human stuff, you've got the Eye of Harmony, uh, you know, you've got that whole weird Jesus-type scene at the end with the Crown of Thorns and... It, it, it just got a little bit weird for me, but I, I can understand why they did it. But, yeah, I mean, I always think of the casual fan, and that's probably where it lost them, that it, 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 it tried to put too much continuity and in And I it. think you're probably right about that, although for me personally, I, I can forgive a lot of plot holes and plot elements. I, I tend to be more interested in the character. If the characters are working, I can forgive some plot elements. And in this case, everything with the Doctor and Grace was, was spectacular, was magnificent. Including the kiss, um, but I, mm. I uh, yeah, you know what? I did not mind the <laughs> Nor kiss. Did I. <laughs> I did not mind the kiss, <laughs> Nor did I. and I thought it was. I thought it was handled very well. It. I remember being shocked, yeah. but not shocked, offended, shocked, surprised. I mean, it. It was like a slap in the face almost. And that's another debt that the new series owes to the. Oh, absolutely. Movie. Would we be where we are now with you know whether you agree with it or not? You know, we have these romantic involvements with the companions. Would we be here now? if the telly movie didn't forge the way. I, I actually think we would be, but I don't think it would have been such an easy journey for fans like us. I, I think the mm-hmm. telly movie was, it was our gateway into modern Doctor Who as it is now, so to speak. It made it easier for us and, and, and the transition wasn't as hard as it could have been. Because I think we would have probably reacted far, far worse had we seen in 2005, you know, a romantic undertone to the entire story without having any experience of that in the past or having the most, I don't know, the the, the biggest romantic hint in, in any way, shape or form was probably the fourth Doctor with Romana. And that was so subtle. It was so subtle. It, it was no way... Uh, a preparation for um for the stuff that we're getting today but yeah i i agree i mean with the teddy movie there are always going to be certain elements that people debate i mean the kiss is one which i personally don't have a, a an issue with either and and the half human is the other thing and for me I, I i generally and again this might be a bit fantastical on my part i just write that off as the tardis lying to deceive the master yeah i mean it's interesting that they've never really used the half human thing ever no ever again except only in very intense fan type productions have they even gone down the half human road ever again and probably quite rightly because it absolutely makes no sense why 
why you would need a human to open it, the eye. It doesn't make sense. I mean, no, it I just agree. doesn't make sense. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. But I mean, and, and and I think that's why I like thinking the whole thing is is just a ploy. You know, it's the TARDIS being infinitely more intelligent than the Master ever will be, and uh, he, he, you know, basically falls for something that simply isn't true. Well, I, I that was another one where I remember at the time thinking, oh, ooh, do I approve of that or do I not approve <laughs> of that? And I and I actually I'm I'm okay with that. I know that that's a minority view in fandom, but um, I agree the the whole thing about Eye of Harmony and that. That that's kind of a that's a little bit thin in terms of plot and why it would be there. But uh, I I kind of like I could see a case for one of the reasons the Doctor is so enamored with humanity is because he has a relationship there, and I don't think it lessens the character any. Uh, I think it makes him uh, interesting in a way. But I also don't mind it being ignored from then on. <laughs> it's not something. <laughs> it's it's not something that is gonna gonna define how I view the character. So, but. But I wasn't offended by it. I did think for a minute Moffat was going to use it to try and justify why the Doctor wasn't subject to regenerations in the same way that other Time Lords might be. And perhaps he was going to wave or weave it into the reasons as to why he gets another regeneration cycle. I'm quite mm. glad he didn't. But, you know, I wouldn't have put it past Mr. Moffat there. Yeah, I think generally the folks who make the show are happy to ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> They they know it's a minefield. Anyway, let's hear another take on the telemovie, this time from Leeson in his rather special space-time bubble. Hello, Leeson Fisher here, doing a cheeky pre-record about the uh, the Doctor Who movie, what, what everyone's been talking about so far. Now, I haven't heard what everyone's been saying, because uh, I'm recording this from the past or, or, or the future. Uh, so... I don't, I don't want to repeat uh, things that have been said. Uh, I will say from the outset that I love the Eighth Doctor. I love him. He's one of my favourites. And I, but that doesn't mean I like the Doctor Who telly movie. Uh, I, I, lo- I love the Eighth Doctor because of the big finish. Uh, so I did an interesting experiment uh, with. Uh, can you tell I'm full of cold? It's probably audible. I did an interesting experiment. Uh, I, I watched uh, the movie with uh, with my eyes closed. Uh, to see if if it sounded like the Eighth Doctor, and uh, and it doesn't, it, it it doesn't. It sounds like Paul McGann, Paul, Paul McGann. Uh, it sounds like Paul Paul McGann. Uh, the, the character that that he's grown into since he's been doing the, the Big Finish and the, that we saw so wonderfully portrayed on telly again in uh, uh, night before the Curse of the Doctor uh, is is worlds apart from from the the character that he's played in. in in the TV movie, I I was very excited uh, in 1996 when the, when the TV movie was announced and, and when it was on. I remember it was the first time I'd been left in the house on my own. I was only a, I was about 16, I think, uh, and uh, I invited loads of friends around. We were all very excited. Uh, it didn't get off to a good start. I tried my best. I tried my damnedest to be really uh, enthusiastic about it. Da, 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 da. I thought we might we might pick up after this. I mean, surely that, that that's not representative of how the of how the the episode's going to be, is it? But it kind of was. So I was desperately desperately happy to have it back, but I was aware that it, it wasn't quite tickling my buttons. And to this day, it remains it remains one of the one of the Doctor Who DVDs that that is is pulled off the shelf least. In fact, 
I think I think this is the first time this particular uh, iteration of the of the DVD has been pulled off, uh, so that I could I could watch it with my eyes closed uh, to conduct an interesting experiment, and, uh, and it's worth worth trying. I mean, I, I'm not recommending doing the whole film, uh, but certainly try uh, key scenes. Close your eyes, uh, imagine it's big finish, and you'll you'd think that Paul McGann was having an off day. Uh, so it served a very important purpose. <laughs> I'll give it that uh, as. It sort of reminded everyone how not to bring the show back, and I, I, and it's been said a lot, and it's said a lot of the extras that without the TV movie, I don't think the, the show could have come back, and, I, and it, it genuinely it couldn't, uh, and it does, as I say, perform an important function in that it it, it shows you how how not how not to reboot this series, and I know there was lots of problems, and there was lots of people to please. Uh, and hence the sort of mishmash and the and the half human doctor. Uh, uh, Paul McGann Paul McGann's good at it but he's not the eighth doctor that I've come to know and love uh, so I'm hoping that's a different different slant on, on what the boys have been saying their their rational analysis uh, this is the uh, this is the pre-recorded ramble from me can you tell I've got a cold <laughs> Straight from Leeson to Stephen, and he's going to give us uh, his thoughts on that little, I don't know, mini-episode, vignette-type thing that was Night of the Doctor. I was disappointed that I couldn't make it into the camper van to discuss the 96 telly movie, because I've recently been thinking a lot about the 8th Doctor, and it's one of my favourite topics to talk about. I remember vividly watching the telly movie when it aired here in the States, and I also remember enjoying it. I mean, mostly I enjoyed the nods to the classic series, i.e. Sylvester McCoy's The Seventh Doctor, but most of all, and what really made me enjoy it, was Paul McGann as the Eighth Doctor. He was superb. He was so different from the previous actors to have played the part, but yet so familiar. I was immediately a fan. So for years, I was one of those fans whose ears and hopes perked up at the mere mention of a return of Paul McGann. I was disappointed that he was not the Doctor when the show returned in 2005, and when I had a chance to meet the man himself at Gallifrey One a few years back, I said to him how much I wished we would see him on the screen playing the Doctor again someday. I, of course, was elated when Night of the Doctor showed up online and that exact thing happened. What a fantastic six minutes of Doctor Who that short is. Paul McGann's performance was no perfect, as if no time at all had passed between 1996 and 2013. Like a lot of fans, though, for me it only served to whet my appetite for the Eighth Doctor. Sure, I could go back to Big Finish, and by the state of their servers the day that night was released, many people felt the same way, but it wasn't enough just to hear him. I wanted to see more of the Eighth Doctor's adventures through space and time. So I couldn't help but do what appeared a lot of people have been doing since the day of the Doctor and ask, what was Stephen Moffat thinking? As listeners will know, I'm an unabashed Malfit fanboy. I love his Doctor Who, and I truly feel he makes decisions that best serve the story. So I just couldn't rectify why he would choose to create an all-new, never-been-seen-before version of the Doctor to have fought in the Time War, instead of bringing back Paul McGann to reprise his role. It wasn't because Paul could no longer look or play the part, and it wasn't to avoid making the other surviving Doctors feel left out because, well, Tom Baker. No, in the end, at least in my opinion... It's because it was simply ever so more exciting to bring a new baggage-free version of the Doctor played by a major Hollywood actor into the fold. 
I've got to admit, it isn't an easy pill to swallow. When you want something so badly, it's easy to see anything else as a poor decision. I can even hear and see Paul McGann deriding Tennant and Smith for wielding their sonics like water pistols in my head. And I have no doubt that McGann would have been brilliant in the part of the War Doctor. In the end, though, I have to agree with Moffat. The Eighth Doctor is a lover, not a fighter, and I do prefer to picture him as someone who could not have committed the atrocities that it was implied the War Doctor was guilty of. There is another reason, though. The Time War is now firmly in the past of the show, and so is the Doctor who fought in it. At least we think so. But we have years and years of unexplored adventures with the Eighth Doctor, and we're ready to start seeing them and not just hearing them. With BBC Three looking to become Auntie Beeb's own version of Netflix, the time is ripe for a web-only series of adventures. Online petitions have already been written, and the scuttlebutt is that TV execs were taken very much by surprise at the popularity of that seven minutes in heaven we saw last year. One can only hope that there is at least a spark of inspiration in Stephen Moffat's brilliant and insane mind that is seriously considering this as an option. And I'm sure he won't stop hearing about it from fans until he does something. Now, did anyone see that picture of McGann posted today of himself on the current TARDIS set? Such a tease. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for letting me share uh, much of the DWP history with you. 250 episodes, not, not a bad run. Looking forward to the, to the future episodes. God, I thought you were going to say looking forward to the 500th there for a minute. I was, I was having palpitations. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, though? That's only a matter of time. I mean, it's taken us four years to get to 250, and that's not including all of the additional special episodes that we do as well. We probably have already reached 500, Trev. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. But yes, I mean, just, just as the uh, telly movie saw in the uh, new millennia, uh, we've seen this episode, see in 250 episodes, or regular, ordinary episodes of the Doctor Who podcast. Um, <laughs> guys, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. After this amazing week, it's just back to the boring stuff next week, isn't it? Yes, it's episode 251 next week. He says, not having a clue what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the last thing you had on the schedule was something about companions that never companions were. Companions that never were. That's exactly what I was going to say. Well done. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> Oh, please, please, please don't don't mention it because otherwise Michelle will spend the whole week <laughs> w- 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 watching stories. You think you you think I wait till the week of to prepare? Oh my goodness! <laughs> yes, next week we're going to be talking about companions that never were guest cast who we think mm, wouldn't it have been great had they stepped through the doors of the TARDIS and gone off. Uh, with a doctor for adventures and there are loads of those littered throughout the 50 odd history of the show so uh trevor you're going to be joining us for that one too only if we can do companions that should have never have been what a good idea i think we'll have that as a balance well done. <laughs> yeah, that's great join us irrespective of what we end up discussing in seven days time and in the meantime it's bye from me and bye from trevor and bye from michelle bye 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 everybody You've been listening to the 250th episode of the Doctor Who podcast, a podcast made possible by you, our fantastic listeners. Your continued downloads, feedback, support, 
and just general awesomeness make it an absolute joy, privilege and honour to be part of every week. Thank you for being there everyone. 250 episodes, it's an amazing achievement and we look forward to bringing you many, 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 many more. Thanks for listening. Take care. Take us out, Michelle. Me, personally, oh. I mean for dinner now. <laughs> <laughs> can I come? Breakfast. Can I come? With beans. Can I come? Breakfast, but yeah, with no beans. <laughs> have you got, have you got oh, over the bean problem yet? I traumatised um, poor Michelle when she was here, Trevor. I gave her beans for breakfast. Oh, right, okay. He did. Baked beans. He didn't trauma. He didn't. And they didn't agree with you very well, or? No, they were fine. They were fine. It was just the wrong, wrong time of day. There was no it problem. Was are you kidding? You are you kidding? You you don't have baked beans for breakfast in America. <sighs> Thank you, Trevor. Oh, and I had no good idea. Grief, no. Baked beans are the only time to have. Sorry, breakfast is the only time to have baked beans. I agree. So they typ- typically hear baked baked beans go with uh, hot dogs roasted over a campfire oh, in the eve- you know oh. for dinner. But what about baked beans on toast or spaghetti on toast? That's a oh, breakfast oh. thing. Oh, oh, Michelle! Ooh. Honestly, I didn't realise how different Americans were. This is the problem, you see. We, <laughs> when you have a podcast where you have three different continents there, you don't realise how basic. We can talk about Doctor Who for weeks on end. You know, and agree sometimes, but you start talking about baked <laughs> beans, and you suddenly realise how different our cultures really are. I think we've got a whole podcast just based on Michelle's weirdness. Just there, I mean, my goodness. And welcome to the Beans Cast. Yeah, with about three downloads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, me, and Trevor. <laughs> anyway, as I was saying, Michelle, take us out. Of this. Michelle, lead us out. Yeah, yeah.